Well, it is our privilege again this morning to return to the letter to the Hebrews. If you would, take your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6. It was in the fall of 2019 that my wife Rebecca and I had the privilege of going with a group from our sending church to visit Israel. Some of you were even on that trip with us, and it was a rich blessing. I hope one day that maybe our church can go and take a similar trip. But we had a large group. It took about four tour buses to get us all from place to place, and so we assigned a, a pastor to each one of those buses, and our responsibility was to answer questions about the different sites that we were going to, but also really to keep track of everyone that was supposed to be on our bus so we didn't accidentally leave someone behind at one of those many stops that we made along the way. So in order to do my job well as the bus pastor, I had to become very familiar with everybody on the bus, knowing their names, counting them on and off the bus. And I found the easiest way to keep track was to be at the the back of the group. So the tour guide was at the front, I was at the back, and that way no one got lost in between. But from that vantage point, I got to quickly understand that there are two kinds of people when it comes to visiting historical sites. There are, there are those who are, are content with the big picture, and there are those who really love the minute details. Now, being at the back of the group, you might guess that I typically spent most of my time with those who love the minute details. Anybody like that? You love to see every, oh, that's great, we love you. Now, my job was to to move the group along. And so what would happen is the tour guide would stop and he would give a speech about what we were about to see. He would give us a few minutes to look and then he would move on. And the idea is that the group would follow him and move on with him. But that didn't always happen. So as the tour bus pastor, I found myself hurting people in Christian love, trying to get them to catch up with the group. And on numerous occasions, the the group had to wait and stop for us as we gathered those looking at the minute details to push them along. I'm convinced that if I hadn't been there, some would still be at the very first site, turning over rocks, looking for fragments of the cross or what have you. But but we, we made it, right? We finally made it through. Now, when it comes to visiting historical sites, It's really up to you on how long you want to spend at any given place. But when it comes to making progress in our spiritual lives, being stagnant is a deadly danger. There is a danger of getting so caught up with with the basic principles of the faith that we never actually progress beyond them. And it is this danger of, of immaturity because of a, a lack of moving beyond the basics that the, the writer of Hebrews wants to address again with us this morning. You'll remember the theme of the letter, the superiority of Christ. We've been looking at chapter 4, verse 14 through the end of chapter 7. We're right in the middle of that study now, looking at Jesus as the one who is superior to the priesthood. He's superior to the Old Testament priesthood. This section breaks down into four uh, smaller parts we'll call components. We've looked at the first of those. We've called it introductory arguments regarding Christ's priesthood. That ended in chapter 5 verse 11. And the last time we were in Hebrews together, we started this second aspect of this larger section, a personal admonition and warning. It began there in verse uh, 11 and runs down through chapter 6, verse 12. 
Now, the truth is we could, we could stop at, at chapter 5, verse 11, and, and cut out from there to chapter 7, and the argument would continue to run seamlessly, the argument about the priesthood of Christ. But if we do that, if we are to, to skip over this section, we miss some key moments in this text as he calls us to consider our own maturity and progress in the faith. A few weeks ago, we studied verses 11 through verse 14 in chapter 5. Let's read that together just for the way, sake of context. Hebrews 5.11, concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Here's the theme that we were introduced to in that text that carries over into our text today. Cultivate an increasing appetite for truth and press on to spiritual maturity. Cultivate an increasing appetite for truth and press on to spiritual maturity. The overarching concern in those verses was that of spiritual lethargy, spiritual laziness. This is really a wake-up call. What the author says is, I want to progress in my argument about the priesthood of Christ, but I can't. And it's not because these things are hard to understand. It's because you have become dull of hearing. It's because your ears are closed off due to spiritual laziness. There were two primary ways this laziness evidenced itself in the original audience. A failure to grasp basic truths and a failure to develop a mature palate. He says, you ought to be teaching others by this time, and yet you need to be taught. You ought to be on to solid food, but you're still on milk. And the result of that is that they failed to develop what he called discernment. They don't have spiritual discernment because they are dull of hearing. Now, he's concerned that this will make a a shipwreck of their faith, and so he he seeks to right the ship by grabbing a hold of them and calling them, in our text this morning, to press on, to press on to maturity. Understand that the author has has high expectations and high hopes for these people. He's not condemning them and leaving them there, but he intends for them to move forward, and he has every expectation that that's exactly what they're going to do. He'll make that clear later in chapter 6. But let's read our text together this morning, Hebrews 6, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He begins here with this overarching concern, which is that of spiritual progress in verse 1. And it starts with the word, therefore. So this this flows right out of of what he said last week, this, this highlighting of their spiritual laziness. He says, because that is your current condition, you need to do something. You've got to come out of that condition. Therefore, 
And this is going to lead us into this introductory statement, therefore leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ. Now, this is not the primary verb in this text. This is really setting us up. It's, it's laying the table for the primary instruction, which is to press on. But what does he mean here when he says leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ? He's already used this word elementary back up in chapter 5, verse 12, these elementary principles. Here, the elementary things likely refer to the basic truths that these Jewish believers came to know when they first heard the gospel. Things that the author is confident have already been taught to these people, and long ago they should have grasped these things and moved on. But unfortunately, they haven't. Understand that these Jewish Christians had understood the Old Testament. They'd heard of Messiah from, from childhood. They'd studied the Old Testament writings, but now they're having to grapple with the fact that the Old Testament revelation laid the foundation for the coming of Messiah, but now that Messiah has come, there's, there's additional revelation that sheds new light on their Old Testament practices. In fact, they're now under a new covenant, he will say, in Christ. And so they're beginning to grapple with some of those things. I think that's really at the heart of the struggle that they're having. Understand when he says that you need to leave the elementary things, he doesn't mean completely leave them behind. Think of it like we do in the realm of mathematics. When you take a math class, if you're smart in college, the class you don't skip is math because in every single class you learn something new, and if you don't know that, then you can't add on top of that. But you never actually leave the basic principles of math. You use the basic principles all the way through the higher levels of math. That's the same idea here. You do, though, build on to those mathematic principles. The same thing is true in the faith. We don't ever get past the gospel. We don't ever get beyond the basic truths of the gospel. They weave into every other doctrine that we learn, but we are to add to them appropriately because they are simply the foundation of the things that God would have us learn. David Allen says it this way, the meaning here is not that of abandoning the basic teachings of Christianity, but rather the necessity of recognizing the foundational character of these teachings and thus the impropriety of going over the same ground. He says, stop, stop tilling over and over again the same soil and instead press on. Look back at the text. Leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Now, this is the climactic statement of chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 3. It's all been leading to these words, press on. Leaving the elementary parts of the faith, I want you to add to that foundation. In a sense, he's saying, I want you to pursue spiritual maturity. It is the inactivity of these Christians that's gotten them in this mess in the first place. And the solution to that is to do an about-face and to press hard in the other direction to begin understanding more truth and then applying that truth to their individual lives. This is a good reminder that when we think about sanctification, we ought not to think of a roller coaster. I think a lot of people think of sanctification like this. They go through life and there are the peaks and the highs and the spins of a roller coaster. And as Christians, we're just holding on for dear life until the ride is over. But that's not sanctification. Think of sanctification instead like being in a kayak and rowing upstream against the current. 
The idea is that if at any point you stop paddling, you don't stay in the same place. But the current begins to take you and move you backwards. The scenery becomes eerily familiar. Old sins that you thought were dead and gone begin to rear their ugly head. Why? It's because in sanctification, we are not to be passive, but we are to be active. And that is why he says, press on. Press on to maturity. Lethargy is dangerous because it makes us vulnerable to the currents of temptation that are constantly coming at us from the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is why we're often most vulnerable to temptation, not only in our most desperate times, but at our best and highest moments as well. Have you ever noticed that before? In our desperate moments, we're vulnerable to temptation because the current gets so strong that we begin to think it's futile to try and paddle against it. It's just too strong. It's just going to wash me away. And so Christians, unfortunately, take on the, the let go and let God, Jesus take the wheel kind of approach and just see what happens. When instead, they ought to take on the approach of trust God and paddle fiercely. That's the correct response in trials. But on the other hand, in our highest moments, the feeling of gratification that comes with success and happiness often causes us to think wrongly that it's now safe to take a break from paddling and to look around at the scenery. We may even think that somehow we've earned a a moment of reprieve from all of our hard work and all of our spiritual progress. But understand that to stop paddling in the, the, the life of sanctification is to make a provision for the flesh. You remember Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. You and I cannot afford to fall prey to this sin of spiritual lethargy that the author is so concerned about in the lives of these Christians. We mentioned this last week, but it applies here as well, and that is that the standard of righteousness is in fact the perfect righteousness of Christ. And what that means for us is that we never reach a moment in our lives here on earth that we've arrived in our sanctification. There's always another degree of holiness to reach for when the goal is the perfection of Jesus Christ. Understanding we won't reach that until he brings us home, but that nonetheless is the standard. So that means if by, by chance you've fallen pray to the temptation of thinking pridefully that you have have reached a spiritual plateau, that that you've reached your your limit in holiness and the pursuit of the things of God, that you need to correct that understanding. And to help us with that, let's just think for a moment about the Apostle Paul. I think if we would say anyone outside of Christ had had reached a, a sincerely high level of spiritual maturity, we would put Paul on that list, right? And yet, Look at Paul's perspective of himself, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. There's our idea. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind... And reaching forward to what lies ahead, here's our word again, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is is Paul's 
mantra. This is his own self-perception. When he looks at himself, he says, I don't look at myself as having attained to this righteousness. Therefore, I continue to press on every day, all day. Now, if that was the perspective of the Apostle Paul, certainly it ought to be the perspective of you and I. And so let me just pause here for a moment and ask, is that your personal perspective? I haven't reached the mountaintop of sanctification. I must press on. Is that how you live your own personal life? Do you, do you, you take what God has given you and your mental capacity and stretch it to the limits to understand greater depths of truth? And then do you, you let that truth shine a light on your heart so that you evaluate yourself in accordance with that truth that you might then be conformed to it by the power of the Spirit? He's calling for us to pick up the spiritual paddle and row upstream. But these Jewish Christians being addressed here in Hebrews have obviously grown lethargic in some way, and their growth in the faith has been stifled, and the cause of that stagnation now has to be rooted out. And that's what the author gets to now. As he begins to put his finger on the things that have caused them to stagnate in their faith, he's going to give us two requirements for spiritual progress. Two requirements for spiritual progress. The first requirement comes in the middle of verse 1, build on basic truths. Build on basic truths. Look back at the text. He tells them to press on to maturity, and he begins with the negative here. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Not laying again a foundation. Now again, he begins with a negative word, but really we can turn this into a positive instruction for us. This, these are things we're, we're to avoid doing if we want to positively progress in the faith. Notice the word again, not laying again a foundation. He, he's, he's saying this is the foundation. It ought to be the foundation of your faith, but you should have already learned it. We don't need to keep going back over that foundation once it's been laid. Instead, we're to build on top of that foundation. This is one of the reasons why we're we're so committed to expository preaching in the church. It, it helps uh, keep us from relaying the same foundation week, week in and week out, only teaching those things that are most comfortable and most enjoyable, but having to walk through verse by verse through the Scripture. That ought to be our, our regular steady diet in the church. It ought to be the way we think about the whole counsel of God in our personal, private lives. But when it comes to these Jewish Christians, apparently there were sp specific topics that were really tripping them up. They weren't getting past certain topics, and now he's going to list those for us. What were the things that they were getting tripped up over? It's the things that are part of this foundation. Now, he's going to list six different things, six truths that these Jewish Christians were struggling to move beyond, and he's going to list them for us in three pairs. So he pairs the six together, six truths in three pairs. And each of the pairs have a theme, a basic theme. Here's the first pair. Pair number one, we'll call the basics of saving faith. The basics of saving faith. Look back at the text again. Not laying again a foundation of repentance and faith. Repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. These are the two truths. Repentance from dead works, truth one. Faith toward God, truth Number two, this is a great reminder for us, by the way, that from the beginning, 
of the New Testament. It's very clear that there is one appropriate response to the gospel, and that's to repent of your sins and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. That twofold response is consistently the response given to us throughout the entirety of the New Testament. True repentance demands biblical faith, and biblical faith demands true repentance. They're like two sides of the same coin. Let me show you this quickly in Scripture because this is a foundational issue. Where do we, how do we know that repentance and faith are both required? It's, it's important to know that sometimes only one of those is mentioned, but I would argue that even when one is a mention, only mentioned, both are assumed. Let me show you why I would say that. Here's example number one. John the Baptist prepared the way for Christ by preaching repentance. Matthew 3, verses 1 to 2. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's role was to lay the road, right? He was to lay the pathway for the Messiah, and that pathway was a pathway of repentance. But what about Jesus? Example number two, Jesus, in his first recorded public message, was a call to repentance and faith, Mark 1. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Moving on from there, example number three, the first gospel message at Pentecost is a call to repentance and faith. This is Peter preaching after the Holy Spirit has come down to the group that's gathered there in Jerusalem. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, that is Peter's message, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What does Peter tell them? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism was the outward expression of the fact that they had genuine faith in Christ. We see that in verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. A fourth and final example, the first gospel message to the Gentiles. So after Pentecost, now the gospel's coming to the Gentiles. Guess what we have again? Repentance and faith. This is Peter speaking to Cornelius and those gathered with him in Acts chapter 10. And he ordered us to to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, speaking of Jesus, who's been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him, there's faith, receives forgiveness of sins. And then as Peter's preaching, the people obviously believe because the Holy Spirit falls on them as a testament to that. Now, in the next chapter... The Jews are upset with Peter because he's gone into a Gentile's house and he's preached the gospel to Gentiles. And he says, hold on, God told me to go and God testified to the fact that he saved them. Listen to what happens in Acts 11, verses 17 to 18. Therefore, if God gave to them, these Gentiles, the same gift of the Holy Spirit as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's faith, who was I that I could stand in God's way? But now listen to the response of those who are hearing this from Peter in verse 18. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Now, I think you can see clearly that repentance 
from sin and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ have been the the customary response to the gospel, the saving response to the gospel since the very earliest days of the New Testament. Repentance, then, involves a, a change of mind in which a person is convicted of their sin and makes a determination of the will to forsake that sin and then to follow in obedience after Jesus Christ as Lord. This is more than just admitting that you're a sinner. It is, a, it is admitting that you have sinned, confessing that sin, and a commitment to turn from that sin and follow Christ. Faith describes a person who understands and believes the key facts of the gospel, namely that Jesus is the Son of God, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and offered that life as a sacrifice to God to pay the penalty for sin. Then he rose again on the third day and is alive even now at the right hand of the Father. True Christians not only know those facts, but they've trusted their whole eternal destiny in those facts. They have trusted that Jesus Christ alone is the only one who can save them from God's wrath over their sin. Now this twofold response of the gospel of repentance and faith has been the saving response since the beginning. Now why am I belaboring this point? Well, I'm belaboring it because it's here in the text and I want to make sure that we understand it and that it is foundational, that it's essential. But it's also a doctrine that's come under attack. This idea of the necessity of repentance. Some have claimed that repentance from sin is a work and that to call people to repent is to have a works-based salvation. But you read it with me in Acts 11. When the Jews referred to the repentance of the Gentiles, how did they describe that? God has granted repentance to the Gentiles. Repentance and faith both are gifts of God that happen in the heart of a believer. A repentant heart will express itself eventually in good works as a result of that repentance and new life. But a person's not saved by those works and repentance itself is not a work. And this is important for us to understand because though this is one of the elementary things that the author of Hebrews says, this is, this is basics, okay? This is not deep theology. He's saying this is, this is the baseline. This is the gospel. But though it is elementary, unfortunately in the church, it has, has been watered down to the point that salvation and the response to the gospel is, is simply checking a box on a commitment card or, or raising your hand or, or repeating a prayer after someone else. But that was not the response of the New Testament. It's clear the response to the gospel is repentance and saving faith. And I would just say to you this morning, if you've never truly humbled yourself before the Lord, repented of your sins, and turned to God in faith, do that this morning. That is saving faith. But the point here in the text, of course, is that this is basic. The author is saying, you already know these things. We don't need to return again and wrangle over these issues. And specifically, he uses this term, repentance from dead works. What are dead works? There's a lot written about this. Some would say these dead works are repenting from works-based salvation, and they're dead in the sense that they're ineffective. If you try to work for your faith, it won't save you, and that is true. Any, Any work towards salvation is ineffective, but I think here... In context, he's using the word in the same way he'll use it later in Hebrews chapter 9. Let's look at that together. Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14. 
This is important because it's going to help us understand why they were struggling with these basic issues. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who've been defiled, sanctifying for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Cleanse your conscience from dead works. We could say from evil deeds. I believe the, this is really a call to repentance from the deeds of darkness. They're dead in the sense that they lead to eternal death. And that's important because repentance from evil deeds or sin was important not only to, Jew, to Christians but to Jews. The, the Jews saw that as important as well. But remember, under the Old Covenant... While repentance was surely a matter of the heart, remember there are many passages that talk about being circumcised in your heart. God's always been concerned about the heart. But legitimately under the old covenant, that repentance of the heart had certain required outward expressions. You had to make a sacrifice. You had to to make certain offerings. There were ceremonial washings involved under the old covenant. And I think that gets to the heart of why this was tricky for these Jews. Because we might say, well, why are they tripped up on repentance and faith? This is basic. I I think what's tripping them up is trying to reconcile the aspects of the outward ceremonial requirements under the Old Covenant with heartfelt New Testament repentance that didn't require those things. These Jews are are being tempted to, to try and synchronize some of their Old Testament practices with the New Testament call to repentance and faith. And the reason that I think that is because of the second pair of truths that the author brings up here. This is pair number two in verse two. We'll call the basics of Christian practice. The basics of Christian practice. Look back at verse two. This ties into this foundation. Not laying again a foundation of instruction and washings and laying on of hands. Of instructions about washings and laying on of hands. Now I'll confess to you, this is one of those passages in Hebrews where, where commentators struggle to be definitive because it's, it's impossible possible to be definitive on exactly what the author is referring to with these washings and laying on of hands. But as we look at the context, I believe we can make a very good, uh, not, not just guess, but statement about the primary point of what the author means. And I think it gets to the the heart of the difference for a Jew when they came to know Christ and a Gentile when a Gentile came to know Christ. Think of it this way. For a Gentile, turning from dead works meant a wholesale leaving of their former life. That's our testimony. For most, most of us are Gentiles. There was nothing about our sinful life that was redeemable or good. We don't need to do any of those things anymore. They're dead and gone. We repent of those and now we follow Christ. But for a Jew, while that's true in regards to their sin, many of the practices that they used to practice are in the Scripture. I mean, inspired Scripture tells the Jews under the Old Covenant to do certain things. And so you can see why they would get tripped up as they repented, they began to follow Christ, and they say, I understand that my sin must be forsaken, and even that I'm not saved by these works, but shouldn't we still do some of them? I mean, they are commanded in the the Old Testament. You can see how they they were tempted to hold on to some of those old practices, not to mention the social pressure 
that would have been there from family and friends. Think of it this way. Many of us are patriotic. There's nothing wrong with being patriotic. You, you love our country. Maybe some, Many of you probably served our country. There's nothing wrong with that. Many of us also love holidays. Think about the, your favorite holidays here in the States, whether it's Christmas or Thanksgiving, whatever it may be. And also, if you're a believer, you love the Lord Jesus Christ, hopefully more than all of those things. But now imagine if our religion, if Christianity, wrapped into, by inspired scripture, our holidays and our patriotism, so that we're, they were all together. Now, for some people, unfortunately, those lines get blurred as it is. They shouldn't get blurred, but they do. But for a Jew, you were patriotic about your country, which God had set apart from the other nations, and you loved your holidays that were actually commanded and inspired scripture. And so for you to forsake doing those things would have been very difficult and would have caused a lot of tension even in your own family for you to begin to speak differently and think differently according to the New Testament. I think some of that's what's happening here. These Jews are struggling. That's why they're stuck. Is they're, they're struggling to move on, specifically from washings and laying on of hands is what's mentioned here. Now let's talk about these words. What's, what, what are these washings? Now some would argue that this is a reference to Christian baptism. But the problem with that is that the Greek word used here that's translated washings is in a different form than the word that's used for baptism in the Greek language. Now, they have the same root. If you look at the words in Greek, they look very similar. But this word is plural and is used in the New Testament to refer to Jewish ceremonial washings most frequently. This is why the commentators go back and forth on this issue. I believe here that primarily what's in view are these Jewish Christians' struggle with the significance of their old ceremonial washings and Christian baptism, and trying to bring those two things together. How do they relate in their mind? The same words used later in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10, he's calling them to forsake those things of the old covenant. Verse 10, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, same word, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So with that in mind, I think that's why these Jewish Christians are struggling. Perhaps they're wrangling over this new washing, if you will, of Christian baptism that we're all commanded to be baptized. But also, what about all these other ceremonial washings that are commanded under the old covenant? But what about this second idea of laying on of hands? What is meant here? Well, I would say this is even more difficult to identify exactly than the, the washings, but the basic point, I think, is the same. There were instances under the Old Covenant in which the laying on of hands were significant. Remember, we've talked about making sacrifices. You laid your hand on the head of that sacrifice. Also, when, when men were ordained to certain positions of leadership, there was a laying on of hands as part of that ceremony. Fast forward to the New Testament, the laying on of hands is also significant. We see the apostles laying on of hands as the Holy Spirit is given to these different people groups as they come to know Christ in the book of Acts. If you're interested in that and what that means, I would recommend to you a book called The New Covenant Ministry of the Holy Spirit by Larry Pettigrew. I can't go into all of that, but we have it in the bookstore, The New Covenant Ministry of the Holy Spirit by Larry Pettigrew. But there is this laying on of hands that happens. We'll look at one example in Acts chapter 8 when Philip shares the gospel in Samaria, 
they, the Samaritans come to true faith, and the apostles come and lay their hands on them. Acts 8, beginning in verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For they, he had not yet fallen upon them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And so we see this happening where as these, these people groups are coming to hear the gospel, this doesn't happen every time someone is saved, but for the first time that this people group hears the gospel, there's this laying on of the hands by the apostles, and the Holy Spirit falls on those people. Also, the idea of ordinations in the New Testament. In both Timothy and Paul and Barnabas, there's this laying on of hands to set them aside for a special work. Acts 13, verses 2 to 3. This is uh, Paul and Barnabas. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, just like with the washings, I believe what's happening here is that these Jewish people are they're trying to reconcile the, the laying on of hands that were involved under the Old Covenant and these instances of laying on of hands involved in the New Covenant, and they're trying to reconcile those issues, and they're struggling to progress beyond these questions and these ideas. But the key here, I know that was a lot, but don't get lost in that. The key here really is to understand that the author expects that they should already know the answer to these questions. That's why he says, don't lay again a foundation of these things. What he's saying is, I am confident you already know these things because you've been taught. So why are you still stuck here? You should move on, press on to deeper water. You don't need to be stagnant in your faith, wrangling over these things any longer. But there was one final pair of truths that was also tripping them up. These are easier to identify. Pair number three, the basics of future Hope, the basics of future hope. Look back at the text, verse 2 again. Not only are they not to lay a foundation again of instructions about washings and laying on of hands, but also they're not to relay a foundation regarding the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now the reality of resurrection and even the idea of eternal life and eternal judgment are not just New Testament concepts. A well-educated Jewish person would have understand the Bible also talks about these things through the Old Testament. Look at Daniel chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people... Everyone who's found written in the, book, in the book will be rescued. Verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. What is that? Resurrection. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So this was an Old Testament doctrine the Jews were familiar with. But, of course, it's also a New Testament doctrine. We could go to many places, but Revelation chapter 20 lays this out very clearly for us. Verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, 
and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Both the Old and New Testament teach that there will be a resurrection from the dead for both believers and unbelievers. We would have bodies fit for eternity, believers for eternal life with God, unbelievers for eternal damnation in hell. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. But apparently this point was somehow becoming a sticking point for these new Jewish believers. And and we might relate it to perhaps just a, a fascination with a particular doctrine. We see this happen all the time with things like eschatology. Eschatology is something that people can get really excited about, and all they want to do is read books about eschatology and talk about eschatology and what's your, you know, are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and why, which trib, and there's another trib, and a pre-wrath, and what are you? And if we get really dogmatic about these things, it could have been something along those lines, just talking about these realities and getting stuck on these doctrines that are clearly taught in both the Old and the New Testament. But with that contextual understanding in mind, here's the real issue this morning. What about you? What about you? We need to seriously examine ourselves this morning to see, are we stuck in some regard? Is there some some reality that, that maybe it boggles your mind And so you spend your days just thinking on that one theological reality, trying to to parse it out and figure it out. Is there some debate? And and all you want to do is get online and debate that one issue, and and, and you're ready for anyone to take you on. Is is there anything that has so captured your attention that that's all you're thinking about in the Christian life? Because what we find here is that if you do that, if you fall prey to getting trapped into that one uh, pigeonholed issue, You will not progress in the faith. We're to take this as a warning. That we're to press on to deeper things in the scriptures. You know, it's become popular in larger evangelicalism to to, to kind of think of of doctrine and and hard study as sort of cold and, and not really relational. And so what we need to do is reject all of that and just... Just have good feelings and, and pray for God's presence and just wait until we feel something. This has led even Christians to say to me, really with, with, with a sense of, of joy and pride over this, you know, I, I just have a childlike faith. I don't need theology. I don't, don't teach me that. I, I just have a childlike faith. Understand, Jesus commends a childlike faith. But that is not a call to a perpetual immaturity. A childlike faith means we trust God like a child trusts. But that kind of childlike faith ought to propel us into the deeper things, to have a a deeper love for the Word of God, desiring to stretch our minds and to understand the whole counsel of God. It doesn't mean that we may not enjoy a certain doctrine and like to read and study about that. I'm not talking about that. But we are to want to know all that God has said to us and to constantly be seeking to understand it and apply it, that our lives might be transformed accordingly. So let me ask you, have you grown lazy 
in your walk with the Lord? Is something tripping you up? This text would tell us to press on, keep paddling, keep reading, keep praying, keep studying the text, keep asking questions of the text, keep being suspicious of your own heart and weeding out sin and confessing sin and seeking to grow. Keep paddling and pressing on. This is Paul's instruction to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Press on, excel still more. This is the call of the book of Hebrews to us this morning. But there's one final requirement here, just quickly, requirement number two, that we can't afford to miss, and it's this, depend on God's power. Depend on God's power. Not only are we to build on basic truth, but we're to depend on God's power in verse three, a very short but important verse. Verse three, and this we will do if God permits And this we will do if God permits. What is the this that we will do? We will press on to maturity. We will press on to maturity if God permits. This is a reminder for us, a helpful reminder of our dependency upon God. Yes, everything that I've said about sanctification is true. It is not passive. It's very active. You've got to paddle. You've got to strain your, your spiritual muscles to grow. That's absolutely true. But don't ever think that it is your striving and your paddling that will produce one ounce of actual holiness in your life. We are dependent upon God to work within us. It's the only reason we have any hope that our paddling will cause us to get further up the stream. If God permits, we will progress. That ought to be an encouragement to us. It's a reminder that God is both our help and our hope. It puts strength in our arms. It puts wind in our sails. It causes us to pray. Understand that when when we're truly dependent on God, when we recognize our dependency, one of the signs of that will be not only a desire to study the scriptures, but to hit our knees in prayer because we recognize that none of it will make a difference if God doesn't work in me. Let me ask you, when you read the Bible, when you open the scriptures, how often do you pray first that God would illuminate the truth to your heart, that he'd help you to understand what you're reading, and that he'd help you to see sin in your life, that you can confess it, forsake it, and grow? Just a simple time of prayer to Acknowledge our dependency before we just rush in to the scriptures. When's the last time you prayed for God to sanctify you? To sanctify your loved ones. You want to pray for your husband and your wife? Pray that God would, if they're a believer, that he would sanctify them. How often do we pray God deliver us from evil as Jesus taught us to pray? This ought to be our commitment as we press on and we give our maximum effort to to grow in maturity one degree after another, we recognize it will only happen if God permits. Let me just say, when he says, if God permits, he doesn't mean to call into question whether or not God desires for our holiness. God desires for your holiness more than, than you ever will. 
or could. It's just a reminder for us that we are dependent wholly upon him. And so as we wrap up these powerful verses, let me just leave you with the one overarching application. It's clear. It's right here on the pages of Scripture. Press on to maturity. What, what do you do with this? You take it and you let it motivate you to press on to maturity. For these Jewish Christians, it seems that some of these things, perhaps this preoccupation with the Old Covenant versus the New, it was tripping them up. It was keeping them stagnant in their faith. So is there some doctrine, as we said, that's captivated your attention, that's keeping you bogged down? Maybe it's not some doctrine that's tripped you up. Maybe it's much more mundane. Perhaps for you, you need to consider how you're currently using your time. Are you just wasting time on other things? Again, this we've seen before, like places like Ecclesiastes, God calls us to enjoy our lives. It's okay to enjoy the fruit of your labors. It's, it's okay to enjoy things like family and entertainment in the right quantities, but if you're honest with yourself, are you wasting time that you could be using, should be using to press on? Maybe your problem's on the other end of the spectrum, and, and it's not that you're wasting time, it's that you feel so busy that, that you, there is no time in your mind to pursue the things of God. You would love to read more, you would love to memorize, you would, you would love to pray more, and you're, you're hoping to do that one day. It's just you've got to wait for that new job schedule to come out, or you've got to wait until you pass this exam that you're cramming for. You've got to wait till your kids get out of diapers, whatever it is. Understand there'll always be the next thing, always. Just find someone that's 10 years older than you in the room and ask them, and they'll tell you, yeah, I'm still, still the same. I've got to prioritize being in the Word, shepherding my heart, or, 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 or my mind will get sucked up with the things of the day right when I put my feet on the ground in the morning. Understand the busier you are, the more you need to be in the Word, and that when we don't prioritize these things, we make provision for the flesh. It's my prayer this morning that we would all press on to maturity in the faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess that oftentimes we, we fail to accurately apply the truth. We sometimes fail to accurately understand the truth. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But we pray that wouldn't be true this morning. We pray that as we think on this call to to press on, God, that we would be convicted to do that, strengthened to do that. We confess our dependency on you for these things, that we'll make no, not one step of progress in the faith if you don't act upon our hearts and our lives. And so, God, we ask that you would produce in us Christ-likeness. Give us a deepening love for your truth, a deepening love for prayer, and a commitment to live out the things that we read. We ask it in your precious name. Amen.